Welcome everyone to another episode of Pathfinder presented by Payload, the leading digital media company in the space industry. I have an extra, extra, extra special guest uh, for the show today. Payload's very own fearless managing editor, Jacqueline Felcher, is going to be in the hot seat today. Uh, She told me before the show she's been dreaming about this moment ever since she joined Payload. Am I right? Sure, let's go with that. I've listened to the ones (laughs) you've done with all the other staff. Uh, No, but in all seriousness, very, very, very excited to have you on the show. Uh, And I know a lot of folks have been waiting to hear from you, um, hear, hear your story, hear what you're doing for payload and uh, you know you, the things that you're focused on obviously you have you've developed a lot of expertise over the years but just to ki- kind of kick things off um, with a quick introduction tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do for payload yeah so i'm as you said i'm jacqueline uh, i am based outside dc and i've been here for a little over a decade i have been with payload since october um, and i've been managing editor since march so I have ownership of all of our editorial products. So our flagship newsletter, our two weekly newsletters, our editorial events. Uh, yeah, I guess that's it. I guess technically the podcast, <laughs> though you obviously do a fantastic job hosting it. <laughs> that, well, yeah, so technically podcast does fit under editorial. So I do report to you on the podcast. There's no question about that. Um, but uh, yeah, I will say like, you know, that might not, you know, you, you kind of, you say it like it's not a lot, but that is a lot of work. And, you know, we put out a daily publication um, and people ask me all the time, how do you guys find the stories to write? And I know some days write themselves, but other days you really need to kind of put on your uh, editorial hat and really think about what's what's the most um, important or exciting thing or what the readers actually want to want to listen or not listen, but want to read about. Yeah, it's been it's definitely been a shift for me coming from more traditional media coming to a newsletter, you know, when there were slow days and you were just had a website, you just didn't publish a story, but slow days, it's like, we still got to put out a newsletter the next day. So there are definitely days that we're doing some hunting um, and other days when we have, you know, way more than we could fit. Yeah, exactly. So uh, let's start from the beginning. What drove your interest in journalism? How did you, uh, how did you end up here? Yeah, I, I ended up about as far from my plan as I could have. Um, I really am a big baseball fan and I went to college in Boston and I was a double major in religion and English. So neither one really lends itself to a career path, but I really, really loved the Red Sox. And I was like, I want to be a sports reporter. And basically like until I started my career, I was on the path of being a sports reporter. Um, So that was really what drove it. But I think, you know, the, I just love to write. You know, I, I and I, I think journalism is a way, a kind of a natural career in in, in writing. Um, so I love to write. Uh, I love asking questions, and you know, you get. I think part of the appeal of being a sports reporter is you get access to you know a lot of the sports that you love in your personal life as well. So uh, I think you know the access that comes with being a reporter. They say you get like a a seat to the first draft of history. And it's totally true. So even though I didn't end up in, you know, the, the field of journalism that I had hoped, I think a lot of those things still carry through and really resonate with me. So it sounds like, so it's interesting because you, so you wanted to be a sports reporter, but your journalism career is so heavily focused on government and national security. Um, how did that, and, and it sounds like that transition happened pretty pretty soon after you decided to be a reporter. So how, how did that happen? Yeah, so I, I got my master's in journalism at Northwestern and they had a summer program in DC and I came 
to DC exclusively because I wanted to cover the Roger Clemens trial at the Supreme Court. That was my plan, which was declared a mistrial on the first day. So then I had 10 weeks in DC that I had to figure out what I was going to do with myself. And I had been writing, like I visited the brain bank in Boston from Chicago, and I'd been writing a lot about concussions among, you know, football players and athletes. So when I was in grad school, we like wrote, we had like a, you know, school newsroom, we wrote for clients, and one of our clients was Military Times. So I was writing, it was a time when there was a lot of concern about concussion among troops and TBI with troops. So I started writing stories when I was in grad school for the Military Times about concussions in the military. And then when I graduated, I got sort of a short-term job um, as a contractor. I was editing and um, like copy editing the Navy IT magazine, which is called Chips. Um, so that was really just to like help me look for a journalism job and stay in DC. And then I you know, built a relationship with Military Times and they were hiring. So I joined Navy Times as sort of a, a, it's called a deputy news editor. It's kind of a junior reporting position for people, either former military members who don't know anything about journalism or journalists who don't know anything about the military. And I had like, I'd never, no one in my family served. I had no background in the military, um, ended up there and, you know, went, went on to do like more political journalism. But because I had the defense background, I always kind of got funneled into that. Um, and I, I love reporting on the Hill. I, once I got to the Hill, especially as like kind of a optimistic 23 year old, I felt like the things that happened there mattered. And I was, you know, letting the people know what happened in Washington, uh, which is very funny looking back because not, not much was happening on the Hill, uh, at that time. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's how I got, it, it really was just journalism jobs were hard to come by. They hired me. Um, but it, it's funny because so many people want to cover national security and I fell into it very, very luckily. So, uh, Jacqueline, you've obviously held um, a couple different roles um, since then and before Payload. So maybe talk a little bit about uh, what you did before uh, you joined us. Sure. So after I was at Navy Times, I went to the Washington Times where I covered um, you know, defense stuff on the Hill, but also more broad. I was really kind of a, a general assignment, Capitol Hill reporter. So I covered the farm bill. I covered, you know, Ted Cruz's super long filibuster. Um, so it was, it was a fun time to be on the Hill for sure. But I also covered, you know, the NDAA and budget and a lot of the, the more traditional defense stuff. Uh, I covered the, the shooting at the Navy Yard when that happened then. That happened like my second week on the job. Um, and then towards the end of my time there, they moved me over to the Pentagon. Uh, and from there, I went to the Washington Examiner, where I also covered uh, the Pentagon and the Hill, but like de defense pretty broadly. Um, and that was also my first uh, tour with a newsletter. We launched the Daily on Defense, uh, Daily National Security Newsletter there. From the Examiner, I went to Politico, where I was for four years covering the industry, but mostly on, you know, the covering primes and earnings and covering kind of the defense industry side. That's also where I got my first taste of space reporting and launching the, the Politico Space weekly newsletter. Uh, I did, um, I was at Defense One for a little over a year covering broad national security. It was more of like policy focused, um, kind of focused on the White House and State Department and then was really excited uh, about the opportunity to come to, to Payload and be able to get back to space reporting um, because I, I really love doing that at Politico. 
Yes, and and Politico Space was one of my uh, favorite publications. I remember for for quite some time before it kind of just disappeared uh, all of a sudden. And uh, you know, come to hear that it got rolled up into Politico Pro, which now you have to pay for, which has been unfortunate. But uh, so so okay, so you, uh, so you you do your stint at Politico, and then you're at Defense One, um, and then I remember I, uh, g- I gave you. I think we met. Uh, the, for the first time at Space Symposium, if I'm not mistaken. I met um, with through, Ari at Space Symposium, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And Ari mentioned, Ari came back to me and was like, hey, I met this great reporter. I really think we should like talk to her and see if we can get her to join. And I remember you and I had a conversation early days, and I was like, look, um, I don't think we're ready to hire someone else yet, but you know, we've heard really great things, and we just want you to know who we are, and we just want to kind of open up that dialogue. Um, but I'm kind of curious, like, what, uh, what, what, kind of change or not change but like what really helped kind of like uh shift your kind of mindset from going from like a you know established media business to like you know fledgling startup yeah i mean it was definitely a, a scary transition especially because i was pregnant at the time so you know not necessarily the time that you want to make like big risky career moves um but i think you know talking to you seeing your vision for the business and for the company and, you know, really believing in what payload is doing that there isn't anyone covering the space industry kind of the the way that payload is. So, um, you know, just really wanting to be a part of that. And it's definitely been, you know, a bit of an adjustment, um, kind of coming to a startup and being on such a small team and people being all over, but, Overall, it's been it's been a hugely positive experience. It's so funny. I the space symposium where I met Ari, he walked by me and I saw his payload hat. I was like, "Oh my god, payload! Like I love it. I subscribe." He's like, "Oh yeah, like I, I I'm a co-founder." I'm like, "Ha ha! Are you guys hiring?" And then you know, nine months later, uh, here I was working here. All right, so I did I, I did not realize that you had made that joke. That's kind of funny. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm glad you did because whatever that's very possible that it helped uh, help jog something. So, uh, well, okay, so great. So now um, I do have a I do have a separate question um, related um, and you know just kind of tying together how you operated um, at your previous um, uh, jobs and now kind of operating here at Payload. And, you know, the question really is like, you know, now we have, you know, we have a daily publication, right? We publish every morning at 9 a.m. Eastern um, and, you know, rain or shine, right? Meaning like even if there's even if there's a lot of great stories to write or even if there isn't, right? So you have to really think about that as you're constructing the week ahead and what we're going to be talking about, what readers want to read, read about and what they care about. So I'm just very curious, like, you know, what are the, the, the key sort of tools, um, source of information that you utilize to help keep yourself in the loop with what's happening in the industry? Um, and then what are sort of things that you're doing in general to kind of, you know, uh, uh, paint a different, I mean, we do, there's no question we have a different voice in the industry. So maybe talk a little bit about your process effectively, your craft, so to speak. Yeah. So I, I have a Twitter list that I rely on, um, pretty, pretty heavily of a lot of, you know, there are a lot of really great space reporters. So it's great to both kind of track their work and what they're reporting on, but also just kind of their, their chatter. If something is happening, kind of how, how they're thinking about it. Um, you know, if they're, if they're traveling, so they're actually at a launch, what they're seeing. Um, so I definitely rely on that. Uh, some sort of curated Google searches to stay up to date on the news. We are very lucky that we get a lot of inbound PR pitches to kind of know both news that's happening 
and just to see, you know, are are there a lot of pitches all of a sudden on some particular topic? Like kind of where is the industry heading? Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's helpful as we think about the newsletter to think about who our audience is. You know, we're not like when there was the, the UAP hearing, like we're not writing for the person who's like, are there aliens necessarily? Like we are writing for space industry professionals who are generally reading this for their job, not just like for fun. Um, you know, they're, they're not like casual space. Maybe we have some casual space enthusiasts, but I think our core audience. So that really, as we're picking out, you know, what stories make sense, um, it's really helpful to kind of keep in mind who's going to be reading it and what they want to get out, out of it as we try to pick stories. How do you think the role of media in the space industry has changed, uh, especially, you know, with the rise of commercial new, new, new space, so to speak, companies, you know, e- even since you've joined the industry, right? Um, you know, which, you know, we, we, you and I haven't been in the industry for too long, but I, clearly there has been a lot of pretty significant shifts. So how, how do you think that's reflected in media? Yeah, I mean, I started covering space in 2018 and uh, Politico Space went to three times a week. And then they scaled it back uh, to just once a week. And now we are publishing a daily newsletter plus two weekly newsletters. So it just goes to show kind of how much that, that you know, we, we couldn't sustain a three times a week newsletter in 2018. And five years later, there's just so much more to cover. Um, and, you know, to look even further back, you know, but before I started covering space at a time, you know, the shuttle program when everything was looking at, you know, government space, there was no, oh, I'll report on this space startup's earnings or this small launcher or, you know, tourists going to space. Um, the industry has gotten so much more diverse. And I think the reporting on it uh, has definitely gotten more diverse as a result. You see, you see lots of major publications have space reporters, but, you know, I think a couple decades ago, they would have pretty much exclusively been covering NASA and, and maybe, you know, some of the kind of geopolitics of space. But today, there's just so much more to cover. Yeah. Well, look, I have my I have my resident space policy expert here. So I obviously want to use this time to to, to get your thoughts a little bit on on the tr- topics, trends, um, what's really driving the industry right now. But actually, um, even before we get into that, but related, you did mention we have two other publications. Um, and one of them you help manage and run uh, solely, right? You're basically the main driver of that, which is Polaris. Talk a little bit about what is Polaris and, uh, you know, um, what you're working on there. Yeah, so Polaris is our weekly space policy newsletter. Um, it's a lot of news out of DC, given that that's where I'm based, but also beyond kind of looking at uh, the UN or, you know, we covered a new orbital debris mitigation recommendations from the World Economic Forum. So it's looking kind of broadly at space policy, but since it is weekly, I try to focus not so much on, you know, covering the news of the week, but thinking about what are people in this community talking about? Who are the key players in this community that we should be talking to and having a lot of, you know, Q&As or documents or, you know, interviews with with senior officials, um, both on the Hill and in the administration. Um, you know, I, I had an interview with the top, uh, the Office of Outer Space, Outer Space Affairs at the State Department about, you know, some of the international outreach efforts. Uh, so so stuff, stuff like that is really what I try to do to kind of think about what what is the conversation about space policy and how can we help you know drive it and participate it with this this weekly publication 
And how does a uh, reader sign up for Polaris? You can, it's polaris.payloadspace.com. Uh, and you can subscribe from there. And it comes out every Tuesday at 2 p.m. All right. So going back to my, um, my, my original question around the stories, right? So maybe talk a little bit about, you know, there, there's a lot of exciting things happening on the Hill um, across policy, across regulation, across, you know, stories around defense. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about what you are focused on, right? What are the most significant space policy stories and trends that really the audience should be aware of um, that, you know, is a big focus for you? Yeah. So in terms of like topics I'm watching, I think space debris is a, a key area. We've seen, you know, a lot of the international organizations start talking about it. Um, but Congress is actually dealing with this too. They're considering a bill, this Congress that was also introduced last Congress, uh, the Orbits Act, um, that would invest in debris cleanup technology and start to think about, you know, which pieces of debris should be the highest priority be, to be removed. So that's something that we're seeing um, lawmakers start to think about. Uh, also, you know, the Artemis Accords is kind of one of the Biden administration's signature, you know, space outreach efforts um, in terms of international engagement. Definitely watching, especially towards the, the second half of this year, what comes out of that in terms of like tangible, um, tangible accomplishments. And then kind of the other biggest one is really just the budget, the, the budget deal that, uh, you know, Biden reached with Republicans earlier this year, obviously put widespread caps in place. So we don't know exactly what NASA's budget is going to be, but we know that they're not going to get what they asked for. So that raises huge questions about you know, the, the future of Artemis and Mars samples return and a, a number of other, um, you know, projects that NASA is working on, they can't do everything with, with a very limited budget. Um, and kind of the, the bigger thing I'm watching government wide is kind of who, who will do what, where, as the space industry keeps growing and changing, there are real questions about, you know, regulating it. And lots of different agencies could claim ownership to, to one piece or another. So does regulation kind of get split among a lot of agencies or does it all get kind of shoehorned in somewhere? Um, so the kind of the organization of who handles space for the government is another big thing I'm watching. So that's a, a lot of interesting things to unpack there. And I actually have a couple of my own that I want to ask you about. But let's actually start with debris for just a second. There's a whole host of uh, startups out there that are looking to tackle the debris problem in one way or another, right? Whether they're thinking about removal or you know, physical removal or mitigation, some type of mitigation or tracking or awareness, whatever it may be. Um, so a lot of different verticals. Um, my personal opinion is that without any type of formal regulation um, from the government that actually forces the companies to adhere to certain rules that you're not going to really see commercially viable, you're not going to see a commercially viable like debris removal industry, right? Especially at scale. And to me, the forcing function, unfortunately, to get regulation is either going to have to be some type of like significant like value loss from an asset perspective, like the government loses some like super expensive or super like valuable like um, um, asset or satellite in space, or even worse or more tragic, right? A loss of some type of loss of human life or like injury or something, something, something like that. Um, do you agree with that? Um, and are you seeing anything different? Yeah, I, I unfortunately do agree with it. And I think, you know, I, I moderated a panel at the Secure World Foundation Summit for Space Sustainability on new orbital debris mitigation guidelines. And someone from GHGSAT was on the panel and he, his position was very much like, 
if, if space becomes unusable because of debris, like that's our business. So I think there are some in industry who, who are kind of tackling this debris mitigation on their own, you know, for their own, for their own reasons, for the longevity of their business. But to have sort of broader, broader acceptance of regulations, I do think, unfortunately, that it will take, you know, something bad happening to get the attention of broader people in part because like, yes, it's in companies' interest to have space be as clean and usable as possible, but it also costs money to either like put a latch on your spacecraft to be able to pull it down. Like then there's extra weight to launch or to like go up and take it down. There are huge policy questions with, you know, going and, and like grabbing a piece of debris and taking it down. Cause if you can do it with a piece of debris, you can do it with a missile tracking satellite. So like that's a whole other issue, but you know, financially, like will, will most companies invest the money required in what it takes to kind of take their satellites out of out of orbit when they finish their mission without a mandate from the government, it seems not super likely to me. Yeah. Well, um, do you think some of the recent um, uh, regulatory talks and discussions that have been occurring on the Hill, do you think those have any weight, right, for the time being? Or do you think it's more, I mean, wh- where do you think that that's... Yeah. So the, the Orbit Act, it makes some some, you know, serious, it, it, it talks about this in a serious way, right? It, um, it asks, it, it, you know, mandates that the government invest in these technologies, w- which would be huge for the industry to have, you know, government buy-in and government investment flowing. And it also asks the government to create kind of a list of the, the most dangerous pieces of debris. So the highest priority things, it does not take that further step to say, and then we're going to clean up those, you know, most dangerous pieces of debris by X date, or we're going to impose regulations that are that are not voluntary, or we're going to, you know, it, it urges the government to work with international partners, but it it's it's a lot of, you know, softer language. We're going to ask the government to do this. We're going to urge collaboration. Um, so it, it definitely is softer language, but the fact that you know, there is, there are, I think it was, you know, it, it's, it's co-sponsored by more, more than two lawmakers. There are a couple lawmakers kind of backing this effort. The fact that this effort is even being talked about on the Hill, I don't think it's something that would have existed 10 years ago. So I, I do think it's, you know, significant that, that this conversation is even happening, but the bill does not kind of go, go as far um, as, as actually cleaning up some of this debris, though it does, you know, make important steps in that direction. All right. Well, let's uh, let's uh, talk about the Artemis Accords for a second. So you mentioned it um, before we even just jump into a question. Maybe just for starters, and most most of our listeners will know what the Artemis Accords are, but just curious, like. Just a minute. What are the Artemis Accords? Yeah. So more than two dozen uh, countries have signed onto this set of voluntary guidelines about the responsible responsible use of space. Um, they they are non-binding, um, but through them, the, the U.S. government has you know created space partnerships with a number of non-traditional partners. Uh, Administrator Nelson just got back from South America, where he got more signatories. So um, it it has helped the U.S. government kind of increase its outreach in space, but it, it does not include some of the major space players of the, of the future. Yeah. So if you um, think about um, space treaties globally, right. And there's the big, there's the famous one, right. The outer space treaty of 67, 
Now, most of these like laws, treaties, they're notorious for being more bark than bite. And, you know, we've, we've heard from lots of different um, folks uh, in the industry, both on the commercial side and on the government side, um, effectively things that reflect that opinion. Uh, I, I'm curious, do you think the Artemis Accords are uh, any different? Or do you think that, you know, or, or do you agree with that statement? Yeah, I, I think the jury's still out on the Artemis Accords um, in terms of how much of a, a real impact they're going to have. They are non-binding, as, as most of these are, and they don't include, you know, China and Russia. So if you're talking about, you know, the, the global space ecosystem without one of the, the 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 countries that's likely to be a major player in the global space ecosystem, um, you know, I, I think I think you're you're gonna miss the mark in at least some way. You know, you're you're not having a conversation with like the other biggest player. Um, but I, I think we'll have a better idea this fall about kind of what concrete accomplishments might come out of them. There are two working groups within the Accords that are going to report out at IAC this October. One is about basically like what benefits uh, countries get from joining the Accords, especially because the State Department is trying to court like non-spacefaring nations saying, if you use space data for anything, you should want to be a part of this. Um, and the other is about, you know, deconflicting activities on the lunar surface, which is super interesting, um, kind of thinking about what that would look like if you have multiple countries operating on the, on the, on the surface of the moon, how you, you would deconflict that to make sure everyone is safe and there's no, you know, thinking ill intent when there isn't. I think you want to be very clear about intentions. Um, that being said, you know, the US and China are the two countries kind of poised to head back to the moon. Um, so if you don't have China as part of this conversation, you're, you're, it's unclear kind of how effective it really can be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, uh, I, I have a scenario to kind of run by you. I'm kind of curious to get your thoughts. So, you know, what do you think? Um, let's, let's fast forward the clock 10, 15 years. Um, SpaceX lands on Mars, right? What do you think will happen if SpaceX becomes the first entity to land on Mars? Do you think Elon claims it as a SpaceX colony? Do you see it as a U.S. colony? Do, I mean, I don't even know if we should even use the word colony because I know that's triggering um, for some folks. But like, should we? Is that even something? Like, what do you think about that? And I and I actually ask it because I'm pretty sure, and I've, I've referenced this before. There was an interview that that um, Elon had with a reporter uh, way back when. It's been a number of years where they asked like this kind of very question. And he, you know, I think he said, yeah, it'll be a SpaceX colony, but I, he might have meant it as a joke, but it still rubbed people the wrong way. So kind of curious your thoughts. Yeah. Y- you never know when Elon is joking and, and when he's not. Um, <laughs> I think it would set a, a really problematic precedent if, you know, a company does this and claims the land as their own. Um, you know, as technology improves and, and companies can go even further, like it, I, I think it, I think it would be problematic. And I think, I mean, lawmakers, I, I could see a lot of like, it's unclear if it would go beyond a strongly worded statement, but I, I definitely think, you know, a lot of people in DC and people in international organizations, like a lot of people would be pissed off and would not be shy about saying it, but without like, it's, it's unclear, I guess, what people could do like i'm not sure what rules and regulations a, a commercial entity would be subject to in terms of that um but it's it's such an interesting question to ask that like 
really couldn't even couldn't even have been asked several decades ago. You know, when when Neil Armstrong stepped foot on the moon, no one thought he was going to claim it as his own, right? Like going with a government entity, there are certain, you know, expectations that that commercial entities just aren't under. So it's it's a very interesting question that I mean, it'd be crazy if it plays out that way. Yeah. Well, so on that note, uh, on sort of government versus commercial sort of regulation and, and oversight, um, just uh, just I'm, I'm kind of curious your thoughts on, you know, back in 2004, Congress passed a law that established a moratorium on federal safety regulations for commercial astronauts um, and space tourists um, that, that are riding the space. Um, and, you know, effectively, they called it a learning period. Now, that period ends at the end of September, so at the end of next month. Well, what do you think is going to happen and what do you think the implications for the commercial space industry are? Yeah, I mean, we we definitely don't know what's going to happen. There are a number of, you know, the the typical space lawmakers, kind of the, the leadership of the House Science, Space and Technology Committee and, you know, their their counterparts on the Senate who have said that, you know, dealing with this in some way is a priority. But if you went up to your average House lawmaker, do they know what this learning period is? Is this a priority for them to pass? So it's it's unclear if this is something that Congress is even going to deal with during kind of the busy rush to the end of the fiscal year, where they're also dealing with, you know, budgets or at the very least a CR. And, you know, they're dealing with the NDAA. They have a lot of stuff on their plate. Or if this sort of expires by default um, and and it allows the, the government to start making rules for this industry that really only has three participants so far. You have Virgin, which, you know, just started flying its first paying space tourists um, this week. You have uh, Blue Origin with New Glenn, and you have Axiom, you know, launching people on the SpaceX Dragon. And, you know, looking at those, like, how do you regulate those three that look so different? Um, I'm not, I, I think it would raise a lot, I think it would be difficult for the regulators to do. And, you know, how, how can Virgin implement regulations that are put on these other capsules? Like, I, I think it'd be hard for the companies as well. And the concern, you know, industry has asked for this to be extended a- another time. I think it's been extended twice so far. Um, you know, they're saying that they need more time for the industry to sort of coalesce around, you know, a, a more similar looking mode of transportation um, and that too many rules too soon like there are only three, like it could prevent other companies from entering, entering this space and kind of being able to thrive. Do you think if uh, the learning period sort of falls by the wayside and expires by the end of September, like, what do you think happens after that? Like, do you know if, if governments or sorry, government, excuse me, if like companies are allowed to continue to operate or do they have to wait for any type of like um, comment from the FAA or any any other regulatory body. So I I don't know for sure. I would think that the companies would be able to continue to operate because it's you know there wouldn't be rules on October first. It, it would basically you know the, the lights come on on October first, and that would the, the FAA would basically just be allowed to start forming rules, which I assume would take a while. They would want to get working groups and get input from industry, and I think it would be a right. while before these rules were implemented. And you know usually with these things, it's like the rules will be implemented on X date. And like companies have to be in compliance with them even further out. Um, so it would really just start the process. And I don't think it would change anything about operations today. We're, in an, we're about to enter an election year. 
and uh, you know presidential election, of course, and uh, could have substantial implications for the space industry, right? And I am kind of curious to understand from your perspective, how do you think the different presidential candidates are thinking about space to the extent that you know or you've looked into it? Um, and really, do you expect significant changes under kind of a different administration? And, and just to kind of set the scene, right? Um, I'm not going to go back too far in time, but if you even go back to the Bush administration, right, um, a few administrations ago, you uh, the Bush administration was effectively defined, right, by the retiring, as far as space goes, um, the retiring of the shuttle and, you know, the initiation of what was at the time called the Constellation Program, which was like, you know, figuring out a different type of vehicle and craft to get us back to the moon and, and to space. Um, and then during the Obama, Obama administration, effectively, the Constellation Program was canceled. Um, and then there was a move towards the commercial crew program, right, which effectively helped launch SpaceX. And I'm obviously oversimplifying. So for those listening and they're like, oh, you forgot that. Like, yes, I know. Um, and then, you know, and then and then finally, um, you know, you had the Trump administration, which was arguably one of the most impactful from the industry's ex- perspective for, for, for since since a long time with the establishment of the Space Force, um, you know, the, the kind of continue the launch continuation of the Artemis program. And really, the revival of the National Space Council. So maybe talk uh, a bit about the current administration. Um, you know, from like Trump to like now Biden, and you know how you foresee sort of the potential next wave. Let's just say if Biden continues to stay in office, what does that mean for the industry? And then you know what what are some other scenarios that you're thinking about? We don't need to go through every single one, but just some of the ones that are top of mind for you. Yeah, we've actually, space is probably one of the only areas that we've seen a lot of continuation between the Trump and Biden administration. So, you know, we we didn't see the, the, the wild swings that you've talked about, you know, previously where an administration comes in and scraps the whole program, right? Biden came in and it was like, Artemis is still happening. We're still going back to the moon. Um, and I would expect kind of r- regardless of who is the next president, um, I think, you know, Artemis is likely here to stay. The moon is likely the next uh, stepping stone. Um, so really don't think we'll see a lot of a lot of those major changes that we've we've seen before. Uh, the Biden administration, I mean, there are a lot there are a lot of people doing a lot of good work. Um, there just is not the same sort of attention at the highest levels that there was in the Trump administration. And you you can say that that's a good thing. You can say that's a bad thing, but Biden does not give a lot of speeches where all of a sudden space will just come up, which always happened in the Trump administration. It was something he talked about a lot. Um, you know, Trump was at the the demo two launch where where crew went up for the first time uh, on the Dragon. You know, the first crewed launch from American soil since the shuttle program. You know, Biden has not gone down to launches. Has not you know been been as much of a space presence and. You know, he he kept the National Space Council. He kept the user advisory group and really, you know, expanded the user advisory group to include a more a more diverse set of people to represent, you know, a more a wider swath of the industry. There's a lot of climate change um, academics, a, a lot of you know people from academia. Um, so you know, we, we we've seen him. We, we've seen Biden do, do good things for space, but it just hasn't had the same kind of mainline focus that it did during the Trump administration. I think to, to be to be fair, I think a lot of the focus during the Trump administration did come from Vice President Pence, who, you know, used to travel from Indiana to go to launches. He was like a longtime space lover. So he 
ran the National Space Council in a way that reflected his love of space. So, you know, I, I think I think Trump obviously is very pro-America, and I think space is a very visible, tangible, pro-American thing. Um, so I could see Trump, you know, a future Trump presidency continuing to care about space. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure exactly what it would look like without a Pence vice presidency. Like obviously someone else would be in charge of the National Space Council and it would look a little different. Um, you know, DeSantis is obviously the, the number two, uh, contender for the, the Republican nomination from Florida, big space presence. He recently signed a bill. Um, that would like reduce liability for commercial launchers there. So he has, as you know, in Florida, he has been very pro commercial space, um, which I think would likely continue to some degree. The hard part is that, you know, both Trump and DeSantis would obviously come in with robust domestic agendas dealing with stuff that's not space. While, while I want space to be everyone's top priority, that is rarely the case. Um, so, you know, it's unclear what kind of attention it would get. In, in the broader sphere, but I think they've both showed kind of a willingness to be a friend of the commercial sector. So on the uh, last issue of Polaris, you wrote about the Biden administration's decisions to keep Space Command in Colorado Springs. I know there's been a little bit of whiplash for people on that decision, um, but do you think the battle for Huntsville is over? I do. I, I think, you know, the Huntsville people are going to hate to see it. And, you know, the Alabama delegation has said it's not over. But at this point, like, even, like unless they find something egregious in this investigation they're trying to do where they're, you know, threatening to subpoena testimony and documents, like the Biden administration has spoken, the Pentagon is moving out as if this is a done deal because they have said it is. and. I think, you know, this has obviously faced a lot of allegations about playing politics, but to me, the only way it could change again is if like a new administration came in. And I think at that point, even if that happens in, you know, 2024, I think enough investment will have been made that it would like really degrade the mission and readiness if it were moved. So I think it's in Colorado, but we'll see. This is just the the story that never ends. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, what do you think about the aliens? <laughs> Sorry, I had to ask that the one. The aliens? No, I. I've had so many. I've had so many people ask me, like, "Hey, like, uh, yeah, you must know, like, what's going on with the aliens? Like, do you do you think that there, there are aliens? Like, what do you think about the testimony in uh, Congress? Like, anyway, it's just kind of funny, but this is the thing that like lay people care about uh, on our beat, which is so so funny. Um, I think there are aliens. I don't think the U.S. government has like interacted with them, but I think there are aliens somewhere. Um, I actually just had a very interesting call about kind of some of the more serious issues that are highlighted by this conversation about UAPs and kind of the, the government uh, information sharing on them. So watch Payload for more on that in the coming weeks. But I, I do think there's like a serious story there, but also that it's kind of been a bit of a media circus around it this summer. So related, and we didn't really talk about this. So I'm going to curious to get your to, like, quick thoughts on this, which is like, you know, uh, there is some investigative journalism in the industry. Um, no question. But there's not enough is what I've heard from everyone. Uh, and, you know, there are certain companies, which I will not mention here, that... Um, 
you know, have arguably have had certain stories and 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 things said about them that I don't think enough people spent a lot of time on um, or really to dig into. Uh, curious, like, you know, do you th- do you agree with that? Do you think that that's a gap in the industry? And you know, why do you think if you do think it's a gap, why? Um, and if not, maybe then who do you think is doing a good job there? Yeah, I, I think it's a huge. I think it's a huge hole for the industry. I mean, there's there's definitely a lot more digging to be done. Um, I think part of the reason it's not happening is that most kind of mainstream publications, if they cover space, they have a single space reporter. Or you know, when I was at Politico, I was a space reporter who also covered defense. You know, so it's either like someone's job or half of someone's job. And doing investigative reporting just takes a lot of time. So at many of these, you know, mainstream publications, they want their space reporters to be publishing for the daily paper or the daily website or, you know, contributing more regularly, um, kind of taking the time. And you, you can chip away at, at longer projects on the side, but, you know, it, it takes a really, really long time. So I'm hopeful that, you know, space focused publications like ours can do more of that digging, but for kind of mainstream newsrooms, for newsrooms that have a single space reporter, I think it's a really hard ask to be like, add another like just space investigative reporter. So um, I've been asking a lot of the questions, um, but for this next section, I'm actually going to transition and uh, I've gathered some questions from the company, from folks at the company that I want to ask you. Um, and uh, don't worry, they're not that controversial. They're actually kind of fun and, and, and interesting. But, uh, but I'm going to just go down the list. Uh, you know, people have been burning to ask you some of these questions. Um, but I'll start with this first one, which is an easy one, um, which has been a relatively easy one, I should say. Uh, what has been the biggest challenge from moving from a senior writer role to now editor of a publication? Yeah, it's... It's been a big shift. Um, you know, as a reporter, I was definitely guilty of writing something that was sort of okay and being like, oh, my editor will clean this up. And now, like, I'm the one cleaning up. So I think, um, kind of probably the biggest challenge for me has been like sticking with like the voice of payload, kind of the, the funny voice and the lighthearted voice that we're known for um, coming from more mainstream organizations. It's not something I had a lot of practice with before coming here. Um, But it's been very fun. I always loved being a reporter because, you know, you would, you would get that big interview or you would write that big story and it would blow up and you would like feel all this pride in it. And I was like, am I going to feel that as an editor? But, you know, we had, a member of our team wrote this great pro- profile of the spaceport com- spaceport company this week, um, and you know I, I went through the process with him of getting the interviews and asking the questions and like watching our reporters succeed has like made me have that same pride that I used to have as a reporter. So it's it's been very very fun to kind of work with the team uh, and help help kind of shape our coverage for sure. What's your uh, favorite space topic to cover? You had to pick one singular topic that you're like, this is the one I love to cover. What would it be? I'm a sucker for orbital debris. I like, well, th- there was, <laughs> there was something where like, oh, it was like a, a Chinese, Chinese rocket body. It was like orbital debris. And I was just, my husband hears about it nonstop. I just uh, go off about it a lot because I do think like a, a piece of like a fleck of paint 
went like inches into a shuttle window, right? Like very, very small things can do a lot of damage. And like, you have like a couple bad collisions and all of a sudden, like there's no GPS and really like no opportunity, right? So like so much of our lives are tied to space and it really is like all at the whim of a fleck of paint, which is terrifying. And I don't think many people like know about it and get it. So especially like non-space people, I'm always like, but have you heard about debris in space? And I get like really nerdy into it. Uh, yes, uh, the, I, I can I can see how one would get excited. I don't think orbital debris get, like make, you know wakes me up in the morning, but I can see <laughs> how it does for you. Uh, now uh, I do have a so so actually unrelated to any of the questions that folks asked internally. I am curious since you since you brought up orbital debris, are you a believer in the Kessler syndrome? I think so. Yeah. That's where like you you have like one and then like those pieces of debris create more yeah, debris. Basically, and, basically, yeah. Could, yeah. For the audience that doesn't know, it's like the idea is like this. It's this like theory that, um, you know, one collision in space is going to lead to a domino effect and, you know, lead to, you know, another bigger co- collision and another bigger collision. And ultimately what it will do and what the Kessler syndrome says simplistically is that the um, that the entire like Earth orbit will be unusable one day. Because it was basically like we've basically created this gigantic pile of junk, which doesn't allow for anything to actually operate. I definitely. So it's, pretty, it's pretty dark. Yeah. No, I, I definitely buy into this because like practically, you know, one collision will create lots of debris. But at the same time, we have not seen lots more collisions after like the couple ASAT tests that have happened and created a lot of debris. But. I don't know. I could definitely see it happening if people are not paying attention to it. Um, all right. So back to back to our questions. So what do you enjoy most about Payload? I really love like working on such a small team. And like I'm used to being kind of like it, among my coworkers, I'm used to being like the nerd in the corner talking about orbital debris. And now like we are all nerds together talking about this stuff, right? Like it, it's just been really, really fun to work on a team where everyone is like super passionate and into the same things I am like really into, um, you know, after, cause it's, it's hard to find just like in my daily life or in a, a bigger newsroom, it's hard to find people who are like really deeply into this stuff. And it's been very fun to be surrounded by those kinds of people. Okay. So this next question I promised did not come from me. It came from editorial. It came from the editorial team. Who's a bigger baby, Elliot, Jack, or Rachel? <laughs> <laughs> and maybe tell the audience who I'm referring to. Yeah, so Elliot is my son. Um, he is he is eight months old. So fair to say he is the bigger baby of the three. That feels like okay, the most fine. diplomatic safe, answer. Safe, the safe, uh, safe answer is, and Jack and Rachel are on our editorial squad. So there you go. Um, all right. And then uh, the uh, last question that I'm going to ask from the, from, from the uh, team is um, you, you, they want to hear more about your beer podcast. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Why does this keep coming up? Um, so in February of 2020, um, my, my husband is like a big podcast fan. So we launched a running and beer podcast where once a week we would um, drink like craft beer and we would like talk about the beer and then we'd talk about our week in running. And 
it's, you know, it started before the pandemic and we had just been, you can see, I guess you can't see them, but I have all my like Disney medals up on this wall, but we had just been to like a Disney half marathon race weekend. And so we like talked about that and then the pandemic happened and all our races got canceled and it like very much became like running therapy for us. Um, and we, we did it for a really long time and we like, there's a cider place in Alexandria. We like talked with, cause they host a lot of fitness events there. So we like had on like guests who worked at different breweries and it was very, very fun. And then I got pregnant and I couldn't drink and I like wasn't running much. So we stopped and now I, I've actually broached to him, like we should restart it because it was so much fun, but we are just both very, very busy. But yeah, it was, it was called running on tap. And we probably did it for like two years. Well, maybe one day you can do a space beer podcast because there, there seems to be more and more beer that gets brewed in space. Or, that's, or, or so I've heard. Um, okay. Final question, Jacqueline. Um, and this is more uh, advice related. So what advice would you give to young reporters who are aspiring to get into space journalism? And um, I ask that because I know you get a lot of inbound. We've gotten a ton of inbound from folks at NASA, at different organizations that are very interested in what we're doing at Payload, but just in general, because of like what's happening at the space industry at large, there's just so much more attention, interest, um, both mainstream interest and, you know, interest from, um, you know, more industry professionals that want to actually tell more, you know, talk more about the stories that are happening. So, yeah, what advice would you give a young reporter who's now thinking about, you know, journalism, um, especially in, in space? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think it's a smart, I mean, it's, it's a very fun beat to go into. So like, you should definitely do that. Um, but I, I think it's a smart move. I mean, the industry is only going to keep growing. So I think, you know, that there will likely be more and more space reporting jobs. Um, you know, I, I've seen young reporters have success kind of going into newsrooms and then saying like, well, we should be covering this in space and like not necessarily getting hired as a space reporter, but trying to carve out a role for yourself internally that you, you know, you're pitching space stuff and you think the organization should be covering space stuff. Um, I, I think it's probably a good way to go about it. I, I, so my master's degree is in like health and science reporting. So, you know, I obviously think it's, it's helpful to have a background in, you know, translating complex topics to in like a readable way. Cause that's what a lot of the reporting is. Um, but I, I mean, I've always like been into science. I was a chemistry major, like very early on in college before I switched because I realized that, you know, math was not my strong suit. And this, I think is a fantastic way. You you hear so much about encouraging people to go into the space industry, but not everyone has the aptitude or desire to be, you know, an engineer. So I think I, I would just encourage people to think about like journalism communications as ways to be involved in the industry if if you know you you have kind of more like humanities and writing skills um because it's a very fun industry to be a part of right well uh what i'll say is uh, I, I certainly agree with all that um but more so um thank you for being on the show today and for the audience doesn't actually know this but we had a really major technical difficulty in the very beginning of the show and Jacqueline took it like a champ so I think most most people would have been frazzled but you uh, you handled it really well so Thank you. thanks for dealing with that and thanks for being on the show and uh, excited to have you back uh, sometime in the future yeah thanks for having me